Okay. Does anyone have any thoughts or questions about the story before we go on? Hasn't been one that's pr- prompted a lot of questions. It's not as complicated as the other. Nothing? Okay. So, where we left it last week was the rainy season came. Rama and Lakshmana waited out the rainy season in a cave while Sugriva waited out the rainy season with his harem. And finally the rainy season was over and they were becoming quite impatient because Sita was still with Ravana. Imagine what those months were like while they had to wait till the weather cleared so that they can go, knowing the whole time that Sita is in the hands of this evil Rakshasha. Maybe her life is going to end. Life has very difficult things of us. A great deal of this story, this story is so completely different than the Mahabharata doing them in sequence like we're doing it now. The Mahabharata is this these heroic forces. There's just almost nothing that feels even slightly personal in that story. Just everybody's representing some magnificent quality and uh, some huge psychological or spiritual attribute. But the story of Rama and Sita is this extremely personal story. Rama, his brother, his wife, his wife is abducted. And so what you get from it is just a whole different energy. You get the nobility and the courage of Rama. You get the courage of Sita. We haven't yet visited Sita in the hands of Ravana, but we will tonight. Um, But also you have all of these different examples of, of dealing with adversity on a level that has a little bit more to do with us. It's hard to feel when Arjuna pulls out his bow and, you know, and does all those sort of heroic things that doesn't feel as much like our lives. But Rama and his devotion to his wife, his brother's devotion to him, and then dealing with the abduction of his wife and how he has to just persevere against this and how... And one of the examples in the story is how grief-stricken he is. Just repeatedly, he, he loses his equanimity. He, he falls into despair. Lakshman has to encourage him. And if you think of these as, as, as examples of really how noble, heroic people um, deal with life, it also is part of the story that sometimes the circumstances of life are really difficult for us. And we'll uh, come in here... Uh, the, uh, there's a big section that we're going to talk about, which is all about Hanuman. But uh, there's a certain point where there's an aspect of what Hanuman accomplishes. And whenever someone wants to accomplish something very, very difficult, one of the ways that you prepare yourself to be able to accomplish it is you retell this part of the story where Hanuman had to accomplish something very difficult. And you tune in to the capability of being able to do that. It's, it's very interesting in all the different ways in which this can be used. So, when we left it, Sugriva had become persuaded that yes, indeed, he had a promise to Rama that his whole ability to have the kingdom back was all because of Rama's promise to help him, and now he had to go and fulfill his promise. And it, it was stated as part of the teaching of the epic, you know, when, when you promise a friend that you're going to do something, you shouldn't make him come and remind you. You should always be going forth. And see how many just little rules of life? Just if you promise a friend something, don't make him ask. Just go and offer it to him. And here it is, it's right in the epic, just sort of telling us how to live. So all the army is gathered, but there's no place for them to go yet, because they still don't really know where Sita is. She's been 
abducted by Ravana. She's been carried off in the sky. She's carried in a certain direction, but they can't go rescue her because they don't know where she is. So the first thing that they do is they divide the army up into four groups, and then they go off in four directions. And their job is to search for Sita. And Sugriva describes all these different parts of the world where she might be, and Rama says, how do you know so much about the world? He says, well, when my brother was angry with me, he chased me all over the world, and I had to run from place to place to place until I heard that this particular wood where Rama found him, that uh, Vali was cursed, and he couldn't come in there, and that was the only refuge he could find on the whole planet. And this is, again, the picture of, you know, the, the anger and the fury between the brothers who used to be close. And that, as we talked about last week, desire and anger just completely corrupted their relationship. How often does that happen, that we see that in life, that people allow something to interfere with their clear thinking? And even though Sugriva told Vali that it was wrong, he shouldn't have done it, but then, as we talked last week, Sugriva was influenced by his actual desire, maybe to get something more than he really wasn't really his, and so on it goes. So... The monkeys are d- divided into four groups and they're going to go searching. But Rama feels that Hanuman is the one who's really going to be able to find Sita. And Hanuman's character, it's, he's, he's such an amazing character because he is the epitome of a devotee. He's the perfect devotee, is how Hanuman is described. I have this little tiny statue of Hanuman with folded hands. You see these pictures of Hanuman, and he's on one knee with folded hands, a statue. And his, his body looks more like a human body, but he has a tail and he has a monkey face. But the, the posture of Hanuman bowing like that is the picture of devotion. I have it actually in my car. It's just a little thing. And every time I see it over there, it, it has that attitude, and that's who Hanuman represents to us. But it's not, as we see as the story progresses, it's not a either sentimental or a, a weakly offered devotion. It's a devotion that's offered with all the power of his being. And as we talk about Hanuman later, he's, he's an immortal. He's one of the most powerful uh, creations on the planet. He's the son of the wind god. He has the, the boon not to die until he chooses to die. He can change his size and his shape. He, is, he has wisdom. He has all these magnificent things but he's completely the servant of Rama. And, and this is the combination that is offered to us that Hanuman really represents. And he's fun and the children like him, but on a much deeper and more serious level, he's completely devoted to Rama. And he became devoted to Rama the moment he saw him, as you recall. He was Sugriva's counselor, and Sugriva sent him when these men came into the forest to find out who they were. And he was supposed to be, Hanuman was supposed to be very cautious because Sugriva was afraid that these were really emissaries from Vali, from his brother, come to trick him and get him out and hurt him. But as soon as Hanuman came into the company of Rama, he instantly recognized him for who he was. And the, the feeling was mutual, that Rama also recognized Hanuman as, as the pure and devoted and powerful soul that he is. So now when the monkeys are going off in the four directions... Rama is certain that Hanuman is going to be the one who succeeds. And so we have this combination. And why, why does he know this? Because of the purity of Hanuman's devotion, 
because of the power he brings to it, because of the egoless desire to be successful, because of Rama's, um, because Rama is able to give into Hanuman Rama's own energy. The power of Rama himself is able to work through Hanuman. So he takes him aside and he says, I feel that you're really the one who's going to be able to, to find her. So uh, Rama takes off of his finger a signet ring, a special ring that's his own, and he gives it to Hanuman because, you see, Sita doesn't know Hanuman. And Hanuman will be able to, if he finds her, to be able to assert that he comes from Rama, but how will Sita know? So he gives, he gives, her, he gives him a ring, and he says, and when you find Sita, you give this to her. So now Hanuman not only has his own courageous nature, but the Lord has also expressed confidence in him. And of course, that's the other part of us that gives us power, is when we're really devoted to God, God has faith in us. And we can feel that that gives us more power because we have offered ourselves wholeheartedly. Nothing interferes with that. So... um, the monkeys all go out in a rather monkey-like way and everybody's saying that their team is going to be the team that's going to be successful in all this chaos and the, the monkeys just add sort of um, an element of uh, interest to the whole story. So Hanuman is also going with the son of, of Vali, Angada is his name. And they um, just go everywhere, but... No, they're not finding any Sita. And finally they come to this, uh, uh, they're crossing this desert, and the whole monkey group that Hanuman is part of. And they're dying of thirst and heat, and they're becoming very discouraged because they're not finding Sita. And they see a, a cave, and they think maybe there's something cool water at the bottom of the cave. And so it's very, um, it's a very deep cave, and then some birds are flying out of it, so they figure there's something in there. So they make a very long chain, all the monkeys. And then they get to the bottom, and they discover this, this beautiful, unin- <coughs> uninhabited land of gardens and uh, fruit trees and uh, animals living in peace together. And one ascetic woman, one uh, uh, female ascetic, and... They ask, how, what is this place? And they said, well, it was built by Maya, but then Maya was, Maya was the god who is the divine architect. And then there was a, a, a fight, and the owner of the, the valley was killed. And so now I live here alone. And so she offers them all food and drink, and Hanuman explains that they're on this divine mission from Rama. And he explains the whole story. Every so often when a new person comes into the story, we get to tell the whole story again. How he was exiled, how noble he was, how beautiful and faithful Sita was, how she was carried her away. But now we can't find Sita and we're afraid to go back and tell Rama that we've disappointed him. Um, and And we may be put to death if we fail. And the ascetic says, but you know, no one can leave this cave once they enter into it. No one can get out of here. If you manage to find your way in, you can't get your way out. But then the, the ascetic woman says, but because your cause is noble, she said, I will use my tapasya. And so she uses her tapasya, and all of a sudden all of them are transported, and they find themselves just sitting on the seacoast. And these stories are all just woven in here for who knows exactly what the reasons are, but part of it is when we're on a noble mission, 
when we're doing something for divine purposes, when we're sacrificing our own comfort for the sake of helping others, when we're serving the Lord, sometimes things that look like they shouldn't work out, we attract to ourselves the blessings and the powers of good people who are willing to help us. And this is a very important life skill because a lot of times if we use too much logic and we try to figure everything out too exactly, um, we don't succeed as powerfully is if we just go bravely forth with confidence in our goodness and then that magnetism draws more power to us. So now they find themselves on the seashore and they realize that a, a great deal of time has passed. The time that they spent in the cave, it was hard to tell how much time was passing. And now they're supposed to be back. They're supposed to have reported back to Sugriva and supposed to have found Sita by now. And they feel like they're failing, and they don't know what to do, and they feel that Sugriva is going to be so angry with them, and they really feel like they may be killed. And Angada, who's the son of Vali, said that Sugriva never really loved me. He just had to take me because uh, he had no choice. And instead of returning in failure, I'm just going to sit down on the seashore and uh, fast until I die. Monkeys are very excitable. Okay. Someone else says, why don't we just go back and live in the cave? It would be better just to live there forever and just disappear. They don't really have a lot of good ideas a lot of the time. But Hanuman says to them, this is very unworthy to talk about killing ourselves. Worse still, to go seek our own pleasure when we failed our friends. We have to stay with our duty here. And Sugriva is not going to kill us if we've done our best. Besides, we can't. Where could we hide on this earth if we go off with this commission from Rama and Lakshman and just fail in it and don't have the courage to return? He said, Lakshman will hunt us down if Rama himself won't. And so, um, still, Angada is so frightened, he, fr- he scares all the other monkeys, and they all sit down facing east, and they resolve that they're just going to fast until they're dead. That's just how they feel. So, on a nearby hill, there is an old vulture, and his name is Sampati. And he is the brother of, of Jatayu, who was the, the bird who fought with Ravana and gave up his life in an effort to rescue Sita from Ravana. And Sampati is Jayatu's brother. But when they were both, and, and Jayatu has had a very difficult life because when both of the birds were quite young, they were flying at seeing how high they could fly, and they were coming so close to the sun that the heat of the sun was beginning to burn them. And Sampati uh, went above his brother to protect his brother with his shadow from the sun. And as a result, Jatayu was safe, but Sampati had his wings burned off. And so he fell to the ground. And ever since then, it's naturally very hard for a bird to be able to eat if he can't fly. So this old bird on the hill sees a bunch of monkeys about to commit suicide. And to him, this is very, very good news. <laughs> because they are not far away and there's a lot of them. This is how the story is told. <laughs> but as they're um, you know, going to fast until death, they begin to talk over the story of everything that's happened. And they start talking about you know, Rama being exiled, the whole story, Sita being carried away, and then how Jatayu fought so bravely to try to rescue Sita and gave up his life. 
So Sampati hears the, the name of his own brother. So he, he comes down to ask them, what are you talking about, my brother? Where, where is he? What, has he died? I didn't know that he had died. Please tell me about him. And um, why did my brother have to give up his life? What is going on here? So the monkeys decide, well, here's somebody who really wants to know. So they give up their fast until death, and they gather around him, and they start telling him the story. The monkeys are very changeable. And Sampati says, but I can, I'm very far-sighted, you know, especially since I've been stranded without being able to fly. I can see a great distance. And he looks across the water, and he sees the kingdom of Rama, of Ravana. Because Ravana's kingdom is said to be the island of, of Sri Lanka, which is off the end of the coast of India there. So he says, I can see. I can see there. And I see that Sita is being held captive on that island. Now, the bird, Sampati, also had been told that when he helps Rama, when he serves the Lord in this special way that he was going to have the chance to do, which he never knew what it was until that moment, then his wings would be restored to him. So, as goes on with this story, when we offer ourselves faithfully in the service to the Lord, then our own lives blossom, whether it's as dramatically as this. So now, all of a sudden, the monkeys, there's no need for them to kill themselves because he's told them where Sita is. They actually know, and they're going to be able to not only you know, not only be disappointed, but they're going to have the news when they get back. Um, so, but the problem is that, that Sampati says she's over there, but they don't really know. They haven't seen her themselves. And of course, if they're going to have to go rescue Sita, the good messenger, the good scouts, going to come back with some actual knowledge of what her circumstances are. So they have to decide how are they going to cross what is this hundred Johannes, whatever that measurement actually is of ocean, to be able to, to see Sita and to see what's going on here. So they all start blustering about how far they can jump, because that's how monkeys move. I can jump this far, and one after another, they keep saying how they can do it. And finally, Jambavan, who's the king of the bears, there's bears and monkeys in this army, and he, he just turns to all of them, and he says, Hanuman alone is the one who has the power to do this. And then he talks a little bit about who, who Hanuman was, that his, his mother was a goddess, and she was cursed by a rishi, for reasons unknown, to incarnate as a monkey. And while wandering about as a monkey, the god of the wind, Vayu, um, saw her and fell in love with her and then embraced her. And she was very angry. She felt insulted. I'm, you know, whether she was a monkey or not, she was a, a woman alone, and it was very wrong of him to do that. And Vayu promised her that she was in no way compromised by that. He said it was not with that wasn't a physical desire. It was the desire of my heart, because a child will be born to you who will be the mightiest of all monkeys. So, as a child. Hanuman was so powerful that he flew up into the sky to pick the sun from the sky because he thought it was a ripe fruit and he thought it would be delicious to eat. And Indra was uh, concerned because this mere earthly creature was coming up to his realm, so he shot a thunderbolt down on Hanuman. Um, And then Vayu said, if you attack my son, he said, 
I refuse to, to move. I'm, I'm not going to do my part in the world anymore. So all wind throughout creation stopped because there was an argument going on between Indra and Vayu over, over Hanuman. And so finally, um, the world was beginning to suffocate because there was no wind and they had to appeal to Brahma and to Indra to solve this dispute. And so Indra gave a boon to Hanuman that no weapons can slay you and that you will be immortal. The death will only come to you at if and when you choose. So there are certain characters in these stories who are immortal. Hanuman is one. And there was, uh, from the other Mahabharata, the, the, one of the evil characters who helped murder the Pandavas. His name escapes me at the moment, but he, he's also an immortal. There's just a few of them. They just are sort of stuck in here, here and there, just to make everything more interesting. But Hanuman, you know, came, showed up later in the Mahabharata because he was still around because he and Bhima have the same father. They're both the father of the god of the wind. Bhima was going up to get the flowers for Draupadi up into the mountain, and the big monkey blocked his way, and it turned out to be Hanuman. So the two brothers meet in that story. So Hanuman is still there right now. So um, finally, Hanuman agrees. He has not put himself forward because people have uh, true ability rarely put themselves forward, but when he's asked to do this, everybody else was bragging about their skill, and Hanuman was silent. But finally, truth found him through the person of the Jambavan, and Hanuman agreed, yes, he's able to do it. Now, the problem is, in order to jump, he has to stand on something. So there's a whole story told now about this hill called the Mahendra Hill, which I no doubt is still standing there. And as Hanuman increased in size, and of course to jump, you have to push down to jump. So the story is told that as he um, uh, stood on that mountain and increased his size and began to push down on the mountain, that the mountain was squeezed out and all the, sp- the water flew out of it and all the animals flew out of it and all the creatures underground were squished out of it as he gained his, g- gathered up his strength. And so finally he lifted off and jumped. Hanuman's fantastic jump. And the Gandharvas and the Devas were there. All the angel, angelic beings were there because now Hanuman, carrying the ring of Rama, is going to find Sita. So, when he's halfway over the ocean, a mighty mountain comes up out of the sea and that mountain is called Minaka. And he said... I'm an old friend of Rama, and I'm here to help you if I can. I hid in the ocean because I was in war with Indra. And now I'm here, and I want you to rest and accept my hospitality. And he says, Hanuman says, I have no time to rest. I have an errand to go, and he sails right past him. And then another Rakshasha comes up out of the sea and tries to block Hanuman's way. And he says, you must enter my mouth. I have been without food for a long time. And then he opened his mouth. The Rakshasha comes up out of the ocean. Now here's Hanuman trying to sail across the lake, and he opens his mouth really huge, and he, um, the Rakshasha makes himself large, and then Hanuman makes himself even bigger, and then the Rakshasha makes him larger than that. Hanuman makes himself bigger. And finally, when the Rakshasha is fully expanded, Hanuman suddenly shrinks himself to very minute enters into the mouth of the Rakshasha and then out the other side. <laughs> so he kept his word to the Rakshasha. 
but he just went in and went out. <laughs> and then the monster spoke, who was really uh, a, a goddess of the serpents. And he said, blessings, blessings on you. I was sent by the gods to test you, and I assure you, you will triumph. And then another, he's flying along, and suddenly he finds that he, he's slowing down, and he can't figure out why he's slowing down. And he looks down in the ocean, and there's another um, Rakshasha down there, and she's got a grip on his shadow. So she's holding his shadow on the surface of the sea, and so Hanuman finds that his progress is stopped because she has a hold of, of his shadow. And so this Rakshasha, Hanuman, comes down, and she wants also to eat him, and he enters her mouth, but when he goes inside, he blows her to pieces and then just goes on. So what we're trying to understand from all of this, this was not an effortless journey for Hanuman that he had to use his wits and his skill and his strength. He didn't just casually say, oh, I can do this. So that's why later, whenever you want to um, get strength, you think about what Hanuman accomplished. So finally he lands on the island, on the, the, the kingdom of Ravana. And as soon as he comes to ground, he just shrank to the sides of an ordinary monkey again. I mean, he had to be huge and powerful to make that leap. But now that he's made it, he just becomes a small monkey again. And he looks at this city. And now Ravana, because nobody is entirely one thing or another, even though Ravana is subject to his you know, fierce appetites and he, he lets his lust overcome his judgment and he steals Sita away, he's also a powerful warrior and has, has many um, n- uh, noble qualities of courage and ability to go to battle and to build his beautiful city and to rule his kingdom and he, he, he conquers many peoples and his kingdom is a, uh, includes people from many different lands and they describe it as beautiful and wealthy and it's very well fortified because Ravana is a, a huge warrior and uh, he has the fortress on the island and he has these boons that he will be protected from death by so many different creatures, and so Hanuman looks at this, and the first thing he thinks is, how will we ever conquer this city? There's so much power. There are many people who are not entirely good or still powerful because they have determination, they have concentration, they have willpower, and uh, Ravana has all those qualities. So he said, well, we'll set one thing at a time. Hanuman tells us, again, how to live. Don't worry about what you don't have to face yet. The first thing we have to do is just find Sita. So he decides that being a very little monkey would be the ideal way because he can scurry all over the city and no one will have any idea who he is. He'll just look like um, any ordinary monkey. So as large as his form was when he went across the ocean, it becomes that much small, that much smaller right now. And as he's coming to the city, the guardian of the city, the guardian goddess, not a human... uh, guard, not a human soldier, but the guardian of the city, because places have devas, places have angels. The guardian of the city um, says, who are you, little monkey? Because she was watching out for the city, and she knows he's an intruder. How did you get here? Because no one can cross the ocean. How did he come? And she says, I'm here to just see your city, to satisfy my curiosity. And she, she tells him, go away, and she reaches out to strike him like that. But Hanuman knocks the goddess over, even though he's just a little monkey. And then the goddess remembered 
that there was a prophecy that when a monkey would have the strength to, to strike her down, then the city was about to be conquered and destroyed. And here's just an interesting fact. So the goddess just stepped aside and let Hanuman come in because she wasn't loyal to Ravana. She was just the guardian of the city. And, and kings come and kings go, but her responsibility was for the place. And now she sees that it's time for this to happen. She remembers, she's been told, and she stands back and lets him come in. So there's apparently rules of engagement that if your intention is, is um, not supportive, if, you, if you're entering with the intention to destroy, you don't go in by the front door. So Hanuman climbs a wall and jumps into the city because you don't, you don't come in as if you were a, a welcome guest when you have no good intentions toward them. So as he comes in, he vows that he's going to, to destroy this city and rescue Sita, but punish all those who um, have been so evil. And so he enters with his left foot. Because when you're, again, when your intentions are not supportive, I can't think of the word, benign, when your intentions are not benign, you, you put your left foot down first. I'm just remembering, remember the story of Richard, uh, William the Conqueror? And they say that when he first landed on the shores of England and he came off the boat, he tripped and fell. And all of his soldiers were horrified because here, you know, it was such an evil omen that their leader, when he first landed in England, fell. And as the story goes, William was so quick-minded that he, he declared, I am so eager to conquer this land. And then he grabbed two fistfuls of dirt that I have, you know, I'm grabbing it with my, both of my hands. And then he stands up like this, and then all the men cheer. You know, everything is about <laughs> keeping the morale up. I'm so eager to conquer it, I have grasped it with both my hands. So he steps in with his left foot. And he goes all over the city, and he looks at everything. And he sees that, you know, there's families and music and art and many, many beautiful buildings and tremendous wealth has built this exquisite place. And he also sees that there's armed soldiers and there's a large army and that clearly Ravana has conquered many different people and brought them together. So it's a very mixed population from many different lands. And he saw many, many women, you know, in and out of every home. He was looking everywhere, but he saw no one who was Sita. And then he saw the most glorious palace of all, which was at the top of the hill, of course, and it was surrounded by elephants and soldiers, and he knew it must be Ravana's, and he must have entered in the nighttime because he went into the apartments in the palace. He's just a little monkey, he can get in and out, and he saw everyone was sleeping, and it was, the palace was filled with many beautiful women playing, falling asleep, having played musical instruments, dressed in costly garments, it was just, uh, it was the way Ravana lives in that palace. And so everywhere Hanuman is looking for Sita. And then he suddenly becomes completely ashamed of himself to even imagine that he would find Sita among all these palace women. And he, he feels very ashamed of himself that she might even be there. And then he goes even into Ravana's own chamber and he's struck by how powerful and even beautiful Ravana is, because he does have this force of energy, because no one is entirely evil. And Ravana, some even say Ravana was a great 
devotee of Rama's who was working out all his bad karma by playing the enemy, knowing that in the end he would be slain by the Lord. This is how people take the stories. Robin is also reputed to have ten heads, which would make him less attractive. But anyway, that's what they say. So often when you see the story, you see a big ten-headed creature. But he had, finally, Hanuman felt he'd been in every part of the city, in every part of the palace, and there was no seat anywhere. Hanuman began to fear that, yes, Sampati had seen that Sita had been taken there, but maybe they were too late. All the time had passed. Maybe Ravana had killed her already. And he began to think that perhaps he would have to end his life rather than report his failure. But then he roused himself and thought, well, I will, I will try again. And he went through the entire city one more time. And he said, how could Sampati have been wrong And then he saw one little walled area that he hadn't explored yet. It was a garden. He could see there were the trees at the top, and it was completely enclosed. It was attached to a small temple. He hadn't seen it before because it didn't show. And then he thought, that must be the place. So he jumps up on the wall, and he looks in. And it's a small park, but exceedingly beautiful. And it seemed, as he said, to glow with a certain light. And he said, this must be the place where Sita is because of the, of the light that's emanating from here. And then he saw that, in fact, she was there. She was very thin. She was pale. She was wearing soiled garments. You know, compared to all the wealth and beauty he'd seen everywhere, Here is just Sita, so pathetic and stricken, and she's surrounded by these Rakshashi women, these these mutilated, ugly creatures who are all around her, just guarding her very closely so she has no um, respite from their terrible presence. And then Hanuman, looking at her, not only recognized her in his heart, but he could see the match to some of the jewels that she dropped and a piece of the scarf that he had seen when Ravana was taking her and she dropped things that the monkeys had found. He could see that those were the same things. So he looked at Sita, and then he tried to send to Rama the message that he'd found her, and then he tried to send to Sita the the message of Rama's presence. And he could see, in looking from one and thinking of the other, Hanuman could feel the connection between them that even this separation had not broken. And it was just about dawn by this point. Hanuman had been spending the night looking. And so when Ravana woke up in his palace, his first thought was about Sita. So he gathered up, he he dressed himself in his finest robes and his jewels, and he gathered some of his women around him. And while Hanuman is watching, Ravana comes out into the garden, which apparently he did every morning. He came to see how Sita was doing. And when Sita saw him, you know, she was already thin and pale and she becomes even smaller. She's been here for eight or ten months already and she's trapped in this garden. She's not given anything or she won't accept anything from him. She has only what Rama gave her, but she won't accept anything from Ravana. She's guarded by these ugly creatures and every day he comes to torment her. And she's a a virtuous woman, loyal to her husband, and Ravana is trying to tempt her with power and comfort and beauty and wealth. And and she just has to sit there in this terrible place 
with the faith, the absolute faith, that Rama will find her. So Ravana begins to talk about how beautiful she is and how devoted he is to, to her and what a waste it is of both her beauty and her youth that she just sits here when she could be in the palace and she could be dressed as he is and all the women are dressed and that worthless Rama who doesn't even have his own kingdom is never going to be able to give you what I am able to give you and why do you remain loyal to such a one and I have conquered countries and And again, Sita, she always does, she picks a little piece of grass and she sets it next to her. This is like the barrier, the wall she puts between them. And she says, she gathers up her courage and she speaks to him as she always does. Ravana, have you no one wise to advise you? I am the wife of another man. To court me under these circumstances is to court your own doom. Do none of your counselors speak to you? of the truth of Dharma, already death is waiting for you as long as you hold me here like this. She was not in any way cowering or allowing herself to cower before him. Ravana became very angry, naturally, to be scolded by this woman when he's offered her so much and instead she insults him in this way. He says, it's only because I love you that I have kept you alive, but do not try me too much longer. She said, I would have given you 12 months and only a few months remain. And then if you will not come to be my queen, then you will be my breakfast. And then again, she says, why do you court your own death, you foolish man? Like that. And he's about to lose his self-control and one of his the women who's with him sort of begins to laugh and joke and says oh look at this skinny little nothing why are you so attracted to her come let's go back to the palace where many beautiful women wait why are you so infatuated with this when she's just not worth it and Saravana remembers again that all the power is his even though she can speak like this she has no power at all and he walks away from her and he says to the Rakshashis, guard her very carefully. So then, once Ravana leaves, of course, the strain and the effort that it takes from her to stand up to him with that kind of courage, and once he's gone and she's just surrounded by these horrible Rakshashis, she begins to tremble and to weep. She just holds herself together as best she can. And then the Rakshashis start insulting her. Do you think you can hold out against him forever, you stupid little creature? You have so much power, you can have everything you want. Everything that we want is right here for you. And you're just sitting here and you're so uncomfortable and you're so hungry and you're so dirty and you're so ugly. You know, it's easy to think that these are just words, but she's all alone and has been alone for a long time. She has no idea if Rama knows where she is. She believes that he's going to find her. She hasn't lost faith in her heart that he will. But they're playing into all her fears by saying all this. Okay. And now Hanuman is um, watching all of this. And finally Sita gathers herself together and speaks to them and says, no wife would give up her husband, you know, in a situation like this. How dare you speak to me like this? But then, you know, she becomes a little bit afraid. She said, maybe Rama is no longer searching for me. Maybe he's given up. 
you know, maybe he's just become a, a renunciate himself and just decided that this is hopeless and has left me to my fate. And she said, perhaps I should kill myself rather than end up in Ravana's kitchen. Rather than be eaten by him, I should just take my own life. And so Sita resolves that she's just going to end her life now instead of just waiting for Ravana to take her. And then they say, her left eyelid, eyelid began to throb and her left hand and foot throbbed, which is said to be a sign that good fortune is coming. So Hanuman is wondering what to do at this point. And he thinks, well, I could just sneak away and I could go tell Rama and we could come and rescue her. But he sees that her, you know, she's right on the edge and she's spoken her, these words out loud that maybe she should just take her own life. So he thinks, what if I just leave and she doesn't know we're coming and what if we come back too late? What if she gives in to despair prior to the time that we get back? I have to find a way to give her hope and of course he has the ring. But he says, how can I talk to her? If a monkey just appears and begins talking to her, she'll just think it's something that Ravana has created and she won't just trust me just because I want her to. So he says, I have to win her confidence. So he situates himself in the tree just where she can hear him. He says, I will begin to talk about Lord Rama. And when she hears me talking about Rama, she will realize that no emissary of Ravana could speak in the way I will speak. So when the Rakshashis had fallen asleep and Sita was still sitting there, he begins to talk about the life of Rama. And so once again, we tell the whole story. (laughs) the miraculous birth of the four brothers, how he was the favorite of his father, the the machinations of Kaikeyi, how he was banished, how Sita bravely went with him. Sita is just enraptured. She's been trapped here all by herself with all these evil beings all this time. And now this voice from somewhere is talking to her about the life that she has lived, about the man that she loves, about the happiness that she had, about the nobility of her husband, about the difficulties that they're facing now. And then, but she thinks, she just sees suddenly that there's a small monkey, and the monkey seems to be the source of it. But she says, when you dream about monkeys, it means that evil is coming to some of your kinsfolk. All these different superstitions. She says, perhaps I'm dreaming, and this means that my Rama is in trouble. No, no, she said, I'm awake. No one could speak like that who didn't love Rama. This must be the messenger I've been waiting for. And so Hanuman comes down from the tree, and he introduces himself as a messenger from Rama. And Sita introduces herself and talks about, here she is now at only two more months before Ravana is going to take her life. Sita wavers for a moment and begins to imagine that maybe she's still being tricked because she remembers that Ravana came dressed as an ascetic and that's how she was taken in the first place and the Rakshasha was disguised as a deer and all of these different ways. So she becomes afraid for a moment. But then they describe how Sita went into her heart and she felt the sincere love that Hanuman had for her and for Rama. And once again, Hanuman begins to sing sweet praises of Rama And Sita just simply knows that no evil being could emanate this love for the Lord. So, then 
Hanuman gets to tell Sita how desolate Rama is at her loss. And now all of a sudden Sita's in despair, but not for herself, but for the suffering of her husband. How sad he must be without me, how much he must be suffering, not knowing, you know, where I am. And Hanuman offers to carry him home, carry her home on his back. And Sita says, but you're just a little monkey. (laughs) And Hanuman says, you have no idea. And he begins to expand himself so that she can see how powerful he is. She said, but if you gather me up and try to take me away, Ravana may, may come to attack you. And if you're trying to protect me, you're not going to be able to fight as you really should fight. And then she says, besides, it is not seemly that I should be rescued by anyone but Rama. Rama needs himself to come and rescue. He must vindicate himself and vanquish Ravana. Always Dharma, never comfort. So she's willing to stay there because the right thing is for Rama to come and get her, not for Hanuman to to do it for him. Okay. So Hanuman says, okay, I'll carry the message back to Rama, but you need to give me a sign of some kind so that Rama will know that it's truly you that I have found. So Sita tells a few stories. She begins to talk about her life with Rama, and she tells two stories that only Rama would know about a time when the two of them were together in the forest and she was attacked by a crow. And Rama had to battle the crow and then it turned out to be an evil Ashura disguised as a crow. But no one saw it except Rama and Sita. So Hanuman has that tale that only Sita would know. That Rama, pardon me? An Ashura, a, a demon of another type. Okay. And then she talks about, and then she um, takes off the jewel that is affixed to her forehead that her mother put there when she was married. And so she t- Sita takes off that jewel and she hands it to Hanuman. And then Hanuman takes the ring that he has that belonged to Rama and he gives it to Sita. And then he says, assuring her that help is on the way, Rama is coming, he bids her goodbye and takes his leave of her. Okay, now let's take a break. Um, during the um, intermission, uh, Chidambar made some very astute comments about some of the symbolism of this, which I will now share, but I want to give credit where credit is due. <laughs> he, he was pointing out that Sita in many ways represents the jiva, the individual soul, that is trying to hold on to its honor, to hold on to its high principles, and it is always being assaulted by evil temptation. And she symbolizes our willingness to stay strong and then holding to it and then becoming weak and becoming afraid and then having to stand up again and again and again to the same assault. And um, I was asked the question, why didn't Ravana just take her by force? Because he could do that so easily. She was completely helpless. But at the very beginning, he saw in her a quality that was not that set her apart completely from all other women on earth, as how Sita is described, and he was both vain enough and probably had a little enough honor in himself that he didn't want to just take her by force. He wanted to win her to him, and he thought if he took her back to Lanka, this is what he said himself, back to his own city, and showed her how powerful he was and all that she could have if she simply. Aligned, aligned herself with him, he was confident that she would b- become persuaded because 
who was Rama after all. He was just a little disenfranchised, exiled little man. And Ravana was this huge, powerful person who could literally lay the world at her feet. She could have whatever she wanted. And he just thought that she would want what he wanted. That's the mistake that we make. But uh, another interpretation of that that Chidambar was suggesting is that evil doesn't really overcome us. It's on some level we have to give in to it. And if you want to draw that symbolic picture from that, that's really true. And then I was uh, thinking about the story of Sugriva and his brother uh, Vali and how Vali was fighting the demon and they went down into the, um, the deep cave. This was the story we told last week and how Sugriva was to guard the entrance of the cave but there was all this sound of fighting and then all this blood gushed out from the mouth of the cave and somehow or another Sugriva became convinced that Vali had been killed. When you think about it, there was no reason in the world for him to become convinced that Vali had been killed, but he was. And then he became afraid that the demon was going to come out of the cave and attack him. So he put a huge rock over the cave and then he ran back to the palace. And just and now it seemed that his brother was dead, who was the king, and the country could not be without a king, so Sugriva gets to be the king. And Vali, of course, was not dead, and after great effort, got the rock off the cave, and then came to Sugriva and finds that he's taken over his kingdom and became enraged. And that was the fight that eventually results in Vali dying. Then when Vali has been killed by Rama and is dying, Sugriva confesses. I mean, he, Sugriva tried to explain to Vali, I thought you were dead, I was afraid, I wasn't really trying to take anything away from you, but I thought you'd passed away, and then they insisted I become king. And Vali was just enraged, and he wouldn't hear it. And he just wouldn't hear anything, and he, as we were saying, he chased Sugriva all over the planet and was furious at him, and it wasn't until Rama killed Vali that Sugriva was able to come out of hiding. Sugriva, um, I mean, Vali was subject to anger, and anger caused him to not forgive, to not understand. But Sugriva confesses to his brother, well, maybe I did sort of want the kingdom. <laughs> And maybe I saw my chance, you know, when, when you were dead, after all. And they insisted. And so even though Sugriva sort of said, no, no, I didn't. But these forces influence. We, we're not merely overcome by evil. We give in to it. So Rama sided with Sugriva. He had been told that Sugriva's help was essential. I mean, why he was told that Vali's help was not essential, but it was Sugriva. So he had to bond with Sugriva. He had to defeat Vali. Um, I can't explain to you exactly why, but that's how the story unfolds. But Sugriva also gave in. Uh, Sita's there. Sita's not giving in. Sita's going to be eaten before she gives in because she doesn't want what Ravana has. She doesn't want to, be, to, to desert her husband. She doesn't want to give in to the dishonorable man. She doesn't want wealth and power and jewels and, and position, she, she doesn't want it. So there's nothing that Ravana can do that can uh, penetrate through her perfect dharma. And, and that's, that's an extraordinary image in all of this. And plus she has, you know, she, she fights to have her faith, but she believes that her husband will come and find her. And then also Hanuman 
can't carry her away because we have to be rescued by God. <laughs> I mean, that's another way of saying it. If you want to say something, say it into the microphone. What is Sita's relationship to God? I, I, it seems like her faith is in things outside of herself. No, her faith is in... Rama is the Lord incarnate, and she is his wife. She, she loves Rama, so therefore she loves God. And she's worthy of being his consort. Um, it's a, it's a, it gets a little... That's why she's so strong. Well, she's so strong because she but loves she... Rama. And she's the, she's, the story is meant to be um, the, the example of the perfect relationship between a man and a woman. Perfect devotion, perfect harmony, perfect nobility, perfect equality, perfect loyalty... So Ram and Sita is is always held up as the picture of perfect, um, the perfect relationship. So Sita is the perfect woman. Ram is the perfect man, and Sita is always the obedient um, follower of Rama. I mean, not every woman in the world thinks that that's the ideal woman, but that's how it's presented. But as Swami often jokes, every man wants his wife to be Sita, but they don't really practice being Rama. So. You know, in order to have Sita for a wife, you have to be Rama as a husband. Yeah. Um, but is her faith in God? Rama is the Lord incarnate. So it becomes, if you have faith in Paramahansa Yogananda, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, it's not different than having faith in God because there is no ego in an, an avatar. An avatar is the full infinite consciousness expressed through a physical body. Okay. So we assume that Sita's awareness of Rama's spiritual stature was perfect, and therefore she knew who she loved in loving him. I mean, we just assume that we can. And that's why her faith was so great, but like any devotee, she got scared a little too every now and then. Yeah. Yeah, Sita is Jiva, <clears throat> is and the indi- she's devoted to God. She's the individual soul devoted to God. Right, so... She's the individual devotee, you might say. And when, when they're thought of as the ideal man and woman, that's not who they really are. Uh, well. I mean, to the, I mean that, that's not their essence. Well, yes and no. When an avatar incarnates in a physical body, he actually lives through it. When a great soul like Sita comes to be his consort. And because they are historical characters, even though it's really a myth, it's been myth mythologized a great deal, but it, at the time... Sri Ramakrishna had a wife. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it wasn't... You know, Sri Yukteswar was married at one point, but his wife died and his daughter married. And then by the time we see him as he was, his wife is not in the picture. Lahiri Mahashaya had a wife, Kashimoni. Um, but we don't have a clear... Um, she's not, she's not his, his partner. She was his wife. He initiated her. She was a very advanced soul. All of these things... In the life of Sri Ramakrishna, the, his wife is known as the Holy Mother, and she's she's considered to be, um, uh, you know, a great a great saint, a great soul in her own right. She had a long ministry and disciples. She wasn't Ramakrishna was an avatar, but he had a, he had a wife, and she she played a very significant role both during his life and afterwards. So it's it's interesting how. So what I really meant to say is they indeed are the ideal man and woman. <laughs> Insofar as... I mean, 
you, yeah. Obviously, I misspoke. <laughs> well, it's it's the an avatar's incarnation is always a little mysterious. When Master incarnated as William the Conqueror, and his he had a wife Matilda, and and uh, she, you know, she was his faithful wife, and I mean, like what? And and a, a woman who was one of his disciples in in Mount Washington was. Master said she had been his wife in that incarnation, and she was now his disciple. They weren't identifying, like most of us, they weren't identifying with being, with the role that they were playing. They were with their gender, with being a man or anything else. When Swami asked Master, you know, what is it like? And he was, I think, asking specifically even about the incarnation as William. Master's response was, inwardly you are always free. Yeah. But nonetheless, you play it out. Rama wept when Sita was lost. She was in despair about her being lost. Sita was frightened in the company of Ravana. So there's a, a leela that goes on. Master writes his autobiography about his desperate search for God and his desire for God consciousness. And you just don't know how to draw the lines. I mean, I don't know how to draw the lines. It's probably the best way to summarize it, though, is by what you just said, was that inwardly they are indeed, know who they really are, and in some way all this other stuff is just an act. That's how Master answered Swamiji. Yeah. So, but it isn't an act in the sense of... I mean, the best analogy is taking a, a part in a play. When you take a part in a play and you really play it, you experience it, I've done very little acting in my life, and one of the most notable moments of acting that I was ever in was in the school play here. And it gave me this little tiny picture of it. <clears throat> it was before we had... Uh, our school was... The children were all much younger, so we just didn't have enough children with an, who, were just, who were big enough to really carry these plays, so we, some of us adults played parts. And uh, we did the play of Jesus. Matthew played the part of... Jesus, he dragged a, a cross right up this aisle. It was, uh, we all agreed afterwards, a little overdone. And um, for part of that, I played the part of Mary. And uh, Gary played the part of Joseph. And there was the point at which we just threw into the play that Joseph died. You know, Joseph just disappears from the Bible, but we assumed that he died, so we did a little funeral scene with Joseph. <laughs> so we had Gary laid out, you know, on a slab there. And I was supposed to be Mary, and I was supposed to be, you know, naturally like a mother, like a wife would be, dismayed over the death of my husband. And uh, Matthew is a big man, and I and and the the way we had blocked it out, uh, he pulls me away from Joseph. It's very interesting because I can just still feel it. I just realized that Matthew was much bigger than I was, and I just I didn't need to help him. So I just devoted myself to the grief over the death of my husband, and I just let Matthew drag me away. But I can, I, it, just, it was such a moment, because he's a very, very good actor, and he was really into it. And he just came around me like a son would come over a grieving mother, and he took me away. And I tried not to go, and he took me away. And it was, for me, it was, it was a, a, just a wonderful moment of art, but it was also, it was so vivid in my mind about how you can not be in something and yet totally be in something. 
because I just surrendered entirely to what was happening because it was much more beautiful to do it that way. And I could feel the whole thing happen. If you had stopped and asked me who I was, I still would have known who I was. But in that time, I didn't want to know who I was because I was also, it was a whole huge audience of people. And if, if they were going to receive what this was all about, then it, it was necessary for us to enter into it without reservation. And all of that you can see is how a master would see his incarnation. Because what good would it do anybody if he lived in such a way that we never learned or felt what he was experiencing? And if he just lives and sails through it and then walks away and no real emotion, no real life experience, no real longing for God, no no ecstatic um, satisfaction when the guru comes, when cosmic comes. If none of that, if he doesn't participate in any of that, how will all the rest of us receive what he has to receive? So it's a hard thing to completely put your mind around, but that analogy works. The other analogy that I've always really liked is, it's like when, when we're, when we're in the divine awareness or even in the astral world with whatever consciousness we have, we have a bigger perspective. Then we, we, we are drawn by our karma and our desires to incarnate into human life. And I think of it like we get thrown over this very high wall. And then once we're thrown over the high wall, we can't see anymore where we came from. There's this forgetfulness that comes. And when we're thrown over the wall, most beings, because our senses turn outward and the whole world seems to be happening outside of ourselves. That's just what it feels like on this side of the wall. We tend to turn our back to the wall and start going toward whatever it is that we're reaching for. We just start reaching out. And then we go a long way reaching out there for things and then eventually we die and we get thrown back over the wall and either we don't even, we don't even wake up on the other side of the wall or we say, oh gosh, look at us. Here we did it. The master gets thrown over the wall and he immediately starts back and starts tunneling back through the wall. <laughs> and, and then the people behind him think, why is that guy tunneling back through that wall over there? Because that's really what they do. They're, they, they're interested in God. They're, they're not trying to indulge themselves. They're trying to get back through that wall. And they become so magnetic, we go with them. But they are on this side and they do have to tunnel back through the wall and they have to show us what we're supposed to do on this side, which is quite different than what everybody else is doing. But they still have to get back through it. So they're not really faking it. In, once they're in a human body, they're, they're limited to that extent. They have to go. Those are my feeble efforts to understand. But it does help because it's a, it's a fascinating aspect to it. But you have to grasp it in the right way or else we don't behave properly and we don't draw the proper lessons from the great masters from the epic stories, from the lives of the masters. I I had a lot of time, I mean, there was a lot of time when I did not relate properly to Swami Kriyananda because I refused to take seriously his incarnation. I don't know how else to say it. I was so conscious of his expanded awareness that I I wasn't supportive of the life he was actually living. Um, Last night, or was it, Last night, yes, it was last night when we were talking to the sadhikas, and I was trying to explain that 
If you're going to be a good disciple, you have to help the master do what he came to do. And so Swami Kriyananda had had this, speaking of him, he had this enormous work to do. And I just pretended like it didn't matter. Like all the effort he was putting out was just like insignificant. It wasn't important. But then I noticed that that wasn't how he was regarding it. And I wasn't drawing the right lesson from his incarnation. Just like, well, when Swami went to India in 1958 for the first time, and he was there with Dayamata and Sister Revati, and Swami Kriyananda was appalled by the um, condition of Master's work in India after all those years. It was just tiny, very few people involved, very low energy, and, and as far as Swami could see, absolutely no comprehension of what Master's mission really was. And he was just appalled by it and was eager to get in there and make, in, and make it right. And Sister Revati, who it wasn't her destiny to do what Swami did, but she said, well, everything will be fine. Master is here. She said it like that. And Swami said, he wasn't polite, he said, but he couldn't help say it. Well, Master's been here all these years and nothing much has happened so far meaning that we also have to get engaged in it. We can't just not put our energy into it because usually a statement like that is not necessarily the full commitment of one's energy. It's just speaking through your hat. But anyway, I had to, I had to learn that. That was a really big lesson for me to realize how properly to be Swami Kriyananda's friend, how properly to be Master's friend in all of this. And so you have to find the balance between the, the appreciation that they, are, they have transcended it all, and yet they are participating in it, seriously participating in it. And we have to seriously participate in it. It's, it's very, um, it's totally fun. It takes all of your lifetime to get it right. So it's never boring. It's never finished. And Ramasita's the same thing. Okay. Shall we do a little bit more? Let's go back here. But that was all about the epic. So, Hanuman's sitting there on the garden wall. He said goodbye to Sita, but he hasn't left Ravana's city. And he says, you know, I have to do something more before I leave. I need to inspire Sita with courage. And he said, and I have to put some fear into the heart of Ravana. I don't want to just walk away from here. So, first thing he did was he made himself really large again, and he just wrecked that whole beautiful garden of Ravana's. He knocked over all the trees, he trampled all the plants, and then he just sat, this huge monkey sat on the garden gate and waited, and all the Rakshashi women who had been asleep during this whole conversation between Hanuman and Sita, they'd fallen asleep. They saw this huge garden, uh, this huge monkey, they saw the garden had been laid to waste, they ran to Ravana and uh, they, some said to Sita, what happened? Who did this? What's going on here? And Sita said, how would I know? You know, I'm just sitting here. You're guarding me. But they told Ravana of the great destruction. They didn't tell him that they'd fallen asleep on the job. But they just told him that this terrible thing had happened. So he sent um, uh, a strong force to fight with the monkey. But Hanuman just dispensed with whoever came, and he destroyed them all. But as he did so, he was shouting, long live Rama, long live Lakshmana. 
And then he said, Sri Lanka, the city of Ravana, your doom is near, this powerful voice. And the whole city hears this thunderous voice and the sound of battle and this cry of doom that their days are over. So Ravana sent more warriors there and Hanuman just took care of everyone. And Ravana begins to become a little frightened. Something very strange is at work. This is no ordinary monkey. And he said, this is, you know, some plot to really um, uh, destroy me. But he sends a further army, and he sends his own son, Aksha, there, and who, who attacks Hanuman. And Hanuman just admires Aksha as a great warrior, but he knows that this is war now, and he kills him also. So he sent another son, and this son is called Indrajit. And Indrajit comes to Hanuman, and he drives a chariot pulled by four lions, and Indrajit and Hanuman do battle. And finally, Indrajit realizes that ordinary weapons are not going to vanquish this money, but he has a divine astra. Remember the astras that you get from the gods or the rishis? It's mantric powers, really, powers beyond the physical. And he says the, this mantra, and he sends it to Hanuman, and Hanuman suddenly becomes immobilized by it. But Hanuman has a boon of his own, and he has received a, a, a counter boon to this one, which says that it will bind him, but only for four-fifths of an hour. So he decides now that he's going to allow himself to be taken prisoner, because Hanuman is fearless, and he wants to see what's going to happen next. Now, some of the other soldiers didn't quite trust the magic power of the boon, so they tied Hanuman up with ropes. Now, Indrajit knew that this was a terrible mistake because you have to trust the mantra completely if you then also bind him with ropes. It neutralizes the power of the mantra. So Indrajit knows now that Hanuman is just going along with it. He's no longer under the power of the mantra. So he's taken to Ravana. He's all tied up, and they take him to Ravana. And the king demands of Hanuman, who are you and why are you here? And then Hanuman says, well, I had to destroy your garden and your soldiers because it was the only way I could get to see you. He's very cheeky. He said, I needed to come and see you, and this is the way I knew I could come. And then Hanuman says to Ravana, he said, you are courting your own doom. You must return Sita to Rama." If you do not, you and your entire city will be destroyed. You have a beautiful city here. People are living wonderful lives. But if you do not return that woman to her rightful husband, all of it will be gone. And Ravana becomes very angry and he wants to kill Hanuman. But his counselors say, you know, it's very dishonorable to kill the messenger. He's just a messenger from a great king. You can't just destroy him. You have to destroy those who sent him. They said, but you can torture him if you want to. (laughs) So Ravana orders that Hanuman's tail should be set on fire and that he should be dragged through the city and humiliated before all the citizens. So they bring oil-soaked cloth to tie around his tail, and Hanuman just keeps making his tail bigger and bigger until finally he has a huge torch on the back of his tail. And the Rakshashis tell Sita that your monkey is being captured by Ravan and they're setting his tail on fire. So Sita begins to pray and says to Agni, the god of fire, you know, whatever goodness and purity there is in me, let it be used now so that your fire won't burn Hanuman. 
So Hanuman has these oil-soaked rags and his tail's on fire, but he finds that, that his tail is cool and there's no pain and his tail is not being um, consumed at all. So he is very happy to be taken all over the city because he wants to know what the city is like and where the forts are and where the armies are and where the weak points are. So he just lets him let them do whatever he wants. And then finally he decides he's had enough. He shrinks himself very small. He escapes from the, the bonds, but his tail is still on fire. So he runs through the city and he sets the town on fire. So the fire, the city is in flames, but suddenly Hanuman becomes afraid that maybe Sita's garden is on, in flame too. But he rushes back to her garden and he sees that fire is all around, but because of her pure nature, the fire doesn't penetrate within the garden. So Sita is safe, he is satisfied, and he realizes that he's done what he, comes, what he came to do. And with a mighty leap, he jumps from the island and heads back to the mainland to tell Rama that he has found Sita. Okay, next week. <laughs>